All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have the guidance, the comfort, the instruction, the reminders from your word that we come to learn about who you are, we learn of your grace, your goodness, your provision for us, and we learn how we are incapable of saving ourselves, and that we can only live the spiritual life as we walk in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that that we will each be challenged by God the Holy Spirit in terms of how we need to be uh, more focused on our spiritual life, that we may understand that our mission is ultimately to grow to spiritual maturity so that we can uh, apply your word in every realm of thought, activity, and endeavor, that, that we can glorify you and that we will demonstrate in our lives that your will, your plan is good and perfect and excellent. Father, we pray that you open our minds to the truth of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We are in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, and we're down at verse 16. But in order to have a little review, because this is one of those challenging passages, and I thought, well, we ought to be able to zip through this in a couple of weeks. More I'm digging into it, the more there is to find, especially when we get into the latter part of this this episode where we focus on on rewards. So it all gets set up. It's all in an integral unit. And unfortunately, as I've stated almost every time we've gone into this, because of the way our Bibles chop things up in terms of chapters and verses, and even if you have study Bibles, they'll come along and insert headings for different sections and subsections that that often the way these these sections these these uh, uh, what they call pericopes are divided is we tend to isolate them when you study systematic theology they'll cite these sections but often they're taken out of context and a lot of times because they are not approached from a verse by verse perspective the way in which all of these parts are integrated into the whole of a, of a section of three or four chapters, as I've shown the last couple of weeks, we miss some of the points. So <clears throat> I want to go back again, just remind us of a couple of things. And as we look at this today, we'll be reminded that the focal point of this section from verses 16 down through 22 is, or down to through 30 actually focuses on verse 21 where Jesus is focusing on having treasure in heaven. 
And that's really one of the key phrases to help us understand that Jesus isn't talking about how to be justified, that is in in Paul's terminology, how to be justified so that when you die you go to heaven. He's not talking about that. He's using these words and these phrases are often used in a fuller sense, talking about uh, rewards, talking about inheritance in the kingdom, which goes beyond just just being present in the kingdom. And so we have often talked about salvation in terms of three stages. In phase one, justification, we're justified by faith alone, and we simply trust in Christ as Savior, and instantly we're credited with Christ's righteousness, and God sees Christ's righteousness in us and declares us to be justified. Phase two is a process it's the spiritual life. Now, what the problem we've got in theology is that that for centuries, the predominant views have not drawn a distinction between that which is germane or necessary for spiritual growth and that which is necessary for spiritual birth. Now, these terms, birth and growth, of course, are analogous to circumstances in our individual lives. That which is necessary for birth, for anyone to be born physically, for the uh, pre-birth nourishment and preparation of the uh, of the child in utero, that's very different from that which is necessary for nourishment and health after birth. Before birth, the child is fed and nourished through the umbilical cord in the womb. After birth, the nourishment is taken in orally. So there is a difference. There's a distinction. That which applies to phase one in the birth of a physical baby is very different from that which is necessary in phase two. And yet throughout the history of Christianity, these have not been uh, distinguished very well. And so what you often hear from people is comments about looking at somebody's life, and they're saying, hmm, that person says this, that person says that, this person lies, this person's involved in extramarital affairs, this is this, this is that. How can they be a Christian? Well, what you're doing is you're looking at phase two criteria and trying to determine phase one. Now, a lot of people, I believe, are going to be in heaven. They'll be surprised. And other people will be surprised. There may be a few people who are surprised that you're in heaven. But that is because we have mixed criteria. This really began to develop early in the history of Christianity in the second century as, as works became seen as evidence of regeneration, and the Bible never never puts that forth as as a truth or as a doctrine. And as the theology that became known as Roman Catholic theology became, became solidified in the early church and into the medieval period, this became the standard. The only way that you could know if you were justified was how you lived. And so justification in Roman Catholic theology is not a point in time when a person believes in Jesus, receives the imputation of righteousness, and God declares them to be justified. In Roman Catholic theology, justification and sanctification 
are almost synonymous and they are both processes. So that the way you become justified over time is to participate in the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And each time you do, then God measures out a little bit of the merit from the treasury of Christ. How much is enough becomes the important question, and nobody knows how much is enough. And so you're constantly, as it were, working your way to heaven. That theology was broken by Martin Luther in on October 31st, 1517, uh, officially and formally when he uh, nailed the debating points, the 95 Theses on the door of the church at, in Wittenberg, Germany. When that happened, what he was basically challenging is this theology. Now, it wasn't as crystal clear in Luther's mind at that point, but he had a hotshot young protege named Philip Melanchthon who came along and helped him understand what we now would call a free grace understanding of the gospel. It got muddied a little bit later on in Luther's life, but for a period there, as you read his writings, he's very clear that justification is distinguished from sanctification. Calvin understood that also, that they were distinct, but Calvin muddied the waters later on because the the the, the the blowback from the Roman Catholic Church, their counter-argument was, well, uh, if if people are saved by grace, then what do you do, what threat do you have to keep them moral, to keep them obedient, to keep them under control? If they're just saved by believing in Jesus, then what's to keep them from living, uh, living like an unbeliever? And so even uh, Calvin succumbed to the pressure, and they fell back to this view that somehow how you live is evidence of whether or not you're, you're, you're saved. But the Scripture makes a clear distinction between justification and sanctification or the spiritual life. We're justified by faith alone, and in the spiritual life is a walk by, in the church age, a walk of obedience by means of God the Holy Spirit. That is phase two. Phase three is glorification. So the scripture uses this term saved in three different ways. We often hear people just tend to think of any time they see the word saved as being a reference to justification. Uh, Peter, as we get down into... Um, into verse 25, Peter's going to hear everything that goes on with the rich young ruler and say, well, who then can be saved? He's not talking about getting into heaven when they die. They're already there. The, the 12 are already there, as I pointed out. So we have to distinguish from being saved from the penalty of sin and being saved from the power of sin. Because the word saved, sozo, can mean to be healed, to be delivered, to be rescued, to be rescued from a physical disaster, to be rescued from a spiritual disaster. It can, it has a broad range of meaning. And glorification, we're saved from the presence of sin. There's two ways to be glorified. I've chided Rick King. Rick, Rick, as you know, Rick's got obviously has a gift to pastor teacher and Rick did a great job when he was covering for me when I was in Kiev you may not know this that's the first time he has ever stood in the pulpit and taught adults okay 
That's what a congregation is all about, is giving opportunities to these these guys who are just getting started in ministry so that they can they can learn. But I chided him a little bit because he misspoke a couple of times. Jim, I told him, I said, Jim Myers gives me a hard time all the time, and I give him a hard time whenever we misspeak because that's part of the problems of being in the pulpit. But Rick made the comment. He said, there's only one way to be glorified, and that's to die. So I sent him an email, and I said, there's one other way. Can you guess? It's the rapture. Okay, just wanted to clarify that. So this is the issue. Now, for phase one, it's very clear in Scripture that it's faith alone. Romans passages we've looked at already, Romans 4.3, going back to the Old Testament, Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God. It doesn't say anything about believing and doing anything, and the grammar in the Hebrew indicates that this occurred sometime uh, in the past, probably before uh, the Genesis 12 narrative with Abraham began. So he believed God, it was accounted to him as righteousness, and Paul infers and draws the application from that, that the person who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. It's faith alone that brings us justification. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not believe and follow the law, not believe and do good. It is faith alone in Christ alone. Galatians 2.16, where Paul is countering the influence of the Judaizers in Galatia, were saying, no, 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 it's not just faith alone. You have to also obey the law. Now, that's important because the way some people want to take Matthew 19 and the rich young ruler episode is that Jesus is saying something positively about obeying the law in order to be saved. So Galatians 2.16, Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. You want to say to Paul, well, tell us what you really think. Can you be more clear? He completely excludes the works of the law from justification. Titus 3.5, he says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Ephesians 2.8-9, we've been saved through faith, and it's, in verse 9, not of works. So it's very clear that the Scripture teaches that works are excluded from phase 1 justification. So if this isn't about justification, then it has to be about spiritual life or sanctification. Now, I pointed out, and I'm going to just hit these briefly in case there's somebody who hasn't been here the last couple of weeks. There's a series of synonymous phrases, and it's rare to find this many in one passage. That's, that's rare. Uh, such is the kingdom of God in 1914. Uh, the rich young ruler asks that uh, he can have eternal life or enter into life. But Jesus understands, and this is so important, that he's not asking about how to be justified, but how to be perfect. That is, the word doesn't mean flawlessness or sinlessness, but how to be complete or mature. He's asking for maturity. Jesus properly understands what he's asking for. It's we who misunderstand. Um, 
he, he, Peter says, well, who then can be saved? He understands it too. He's using saved as, as in terms of phase two. So these are important phrases. And then at the very bottom here, what Jesus talks about is, is coming to him, uh, those that he tells the rich young ruler to come and follow me. That is always spiritual life, spiritual maturity, discipleship language. It's not how to get justified language. It's how to be saved from the power of sin language. It's discipleship. We saw the same thing last week in these parallel phrases between the different accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Mark adds, taking up your cross and following me. That's discipleship, not how to get justified. And so Jesus uses his language all through Matthew, follow me, follow me, follow me, all in terms of discipleship. So when the rich young ruler comes along, he says in Matthew's account, what can I do or what shall I do to obtain eternal life, which means to possess it, to to hold on to it, and it is parallel to what is asked in Mark 10, 17 and Luke 18:18 18, 18, what shall I do to inherit eternal life and we have seen that inheritance often refers to rewards and not to justification that these are two distinct issues and even as a number of very muddled commentators will point out it's very clear from 23 to 30 in this chapter that we're talking about rewards and we're not talking about uh, but they don't get that precise, so they get the waters all muddy. Colossians 3.24 says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. The Bible is very clear that how we get to heaven when we die is to believe in Jesus Christ alone. And that is the basis. But also the Bible goes on to teach that our position, our privilege, our capacity and our responsibilities in heaven, in the kingdom, will be determined by uh, our obedience in this life, our discipleship, our spiritual growth, and our spiritual maturity. Uh, that that the Bible says that that we are saved as a free gift. Justification is a free gift, but rewards are earned. Rewards are earned. And the topic at the end comes to rewards when Jesus says in Matthew nineteen twenty eight, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, now that's almost a message in itself, in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, notice he's not sitting on the throne of his glory now. That's amillennialism and it's also progressive dispensationalism. Jesus now is at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't sit on his own throne until he comes at the second coming. When he comes then, it's the regeneration. It is the renewal of all things. It's the re- times of refreshing that Paul, that Peter refers to in, in Acts chapter 3. And the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is rewards, not justification. So when he asks about eternal life, as I pointed out last time, we have to understand that in his context. Life was something promised to those who obeyed the Mosaic law. And, but we know from, from 
Galatians 2.16, which I quoted earlier, that nobody was saved by the law. It's talking about life, post-salvation life, life in this life, life in the future. We looked at Ezekiel 20.11, if a man does them, he will live by them. Again and again in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4.1, Deuteronomy 4.40, you, li- you obey the commandments so that you may live. You obey the commandments so you prolong the days of your life, Deuteronomy 5.33, that you may live, Leviticus 18.5, by which, that is, by obedience to the law, a man may live if he does them. So uh, the question that he is asking is not how do I get justified? He understands that already. He's asking, how do I get this life that's promised in the law, that is promised to us? So he approaches Jesus in 9.16. Now, behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And if you notice in that on the slide, the top verse is from the New King James Version, and the bottom verse is from the New American Standard, and you'll notice one word that's different, and that is the word good, modifying teacher. And in and the point there's a there's a textual discrepancy here in a couple in two or three critical older manuscripts, you have you don't have the word good. But in the vast majority of manuscripts, plus many other manuscripts, you do have the word good. You also have the word good modifying teacher in the Mark account and in the Luke account. So it seems best both from external evidence as well as internal evidence that the word good there is to be understood. Now, some people have raised the issue in terms of Jesus' answer um, when he says, and verse 17, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God, that this implies that, that maybe Jesus is saying that he's not God. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. What he is saying is, do you really understand who it is that you're talking to? There is only one good that is God. If you're going to call me good, then do you understand that I'm God? He, uh, he, he's, question, he's asking him, do you really understand who I am, who you're addressing, and are you willing to submit to my authority? So in verse 16, as we said, he says, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He's asking the question uh, not about getting into the he- into heaven, but about realizing the promises of life. That is how Jesus responds to him in Matthew 19, 17. Jesus says... Uh, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, so he asks, what can I do to have eternal life? What can I have to inherit eternal life in Mark and Luke? And Jesus' response is, do you want to enter into life? So we see that those are parallel phrases, and Jesus says, keep the commandments. Now, if you don't address this correctly, you think that what Jesus is trying to do is show him that he can't keep the commandments. But as I've tried to point out the last three weeks, that runs counter to what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament clearly recognizes that if you keep the commandments, you would have life. Not That's not the gospel. That's not how you were justified. But that's how a justified Old Testament believer was supposed to live, just as a justified believer in the church age is supposed to live by obeying 
uh, obeying the law. So entering into life here is growing spiritually, and it will be clarified when we get to verse 21 that this is what it means to be spiritually mature and what it means to have treasure in heaven. Not that the church age believer is under the law. I want to make that clear. We are not under the law. We're under grace, but there are still mandates in the church age for the spiritual life. It is not a period of antinomianism where we say, oh, goody, goody, I've, um, I, I'm safe so I can just do whatever I want to. That's what Paul counters in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter six. So if you want to enter into life, if you want to experience the fullness, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler who's under the Mosaic law in the age of Israel, in the dispensation of the law. Okay, so he's not, this is not something that would be applied to the church age believer uh, in terms of the law. In fact, the Mosaic law gives us a pattern for many things. It gives us a lot of implications, but it is not directly applicable to the church age believer because uh, we're not to go to the temple to bring sacrifices. We are not, uh, even in the Old Testament, only Jews were expected to obey the Mosaic law. It wasn't even for Gentiles in the Old Testament. It was to, it was to demonstrate the lifestyle of a kingdom of priests as a, as an example to the Gentile nations in the, in the Old Testament. But the promise was that they would have a fullness of life, that they would have an abundance of life. This is also what Jesus is talking about in John 10.10 when he said, I don't come like a thief to kill and destroy. I come to give life, that's justification life, and to give life abundantly, richly, fully. That is the spiritual life, spiritual, spiritual maturity. So Jesus uh, tells him to keep the commandments, and the rich young ruler says, well, which ones? Which ones do I, do I keep? I mean, that would be, seem like a pretty good question because the rabbis, even by this time, had categorized all of the uh, mandates and prohibitions in the, in the Mosaic Law and had identified 613 Outside of the ten in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, there are 603 other commandments. So he's asking, well, wait a minute, which ones are the most important ones? How do I make sure that I have fulfilled them? And it's interesting that Jesus immediately goes to the Decalogue in order to answer. That's because, and it's important to understand this, that the way the Mosaic Law is structured the Ten Commandments are like the preamble to our Constitution. They're basically defining the basic do's and don'ts upon which everything else, the other 603 commandments, are built. And so there's two tablets to the law. There's the, the first tablet, which relate to the commandments, the first four commandments related to obedience to God, prohibition against idolatry. The second tablet of the law, which are commandments 5 through 10, and by the way, Jews categorize them differently than Protestants, and Protestants categorize them differently than Roman Catholics. Everybody has 10, but how they divide the 10 are different. Okay, so that's that just, just for your information. So Jesus just focuses on the second, ta second tablet, the commands that are related 
to human behavior towards other human beings. He's assuming that and probably understands that the rich young ruler is devoted to God. He is not an idolater. He is seeking to, to obey the Lord. So Jesus comes along and he focuses on the foundation of the law. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So once again, we see that he is not antagonistic to the Mosaic law. And in other places in Matthew, he has already repeated three of these commandments. Matthew 5.21, he quotes the commandment, you shall not murder. In Matthew 5.27, he affirms the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And in Matthew 15.4, he affirms the commandment to honor your father and your mother. And so he he repeats three of these and adds two. He quotes... Um, he quotes from the 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth commandments in that order because those are prohibitions. And those prohibitions are you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness. Then he puts in the 5th commandment. Why? Why does he take them out of order? Because the 5th commandment is a positive commandment, and he's going to add one other commandment which is also a positive commandment. So he gets the negatives up front, and then he adds uh, two that are positive, honor your father and your mother, and then he adds a commandment from Leviticus 19.18. Jesus, in Matthew 22.37-39, when he's asked what are the greatest commandments, he'll summarize the commandments in terms of two, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, And he summarizes the second tablet of the law as loving your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18. So Jesus adds these and tells him what these are. And the young man, not with a sense of irony, and I don't think with a sense of pride, I think he believes, rightly or wrongly, that he has endeavored to fulfill this to the greatest ability, but somehow he senses that, that, that he's not really experiencing this rich, full, abundant life that the law seems to be promising him. And so he knows that something is missing. He's not doing it right. And that's what Jesus is going to point out. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I lack? Now, Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't. The point of the law is to show you're a sinner. Jesus doesn't question that. Jesus is, though, though Jesus is going to point out something that is lacking. That's the point of his answer in verse 21. And this is really the, the crux of this whole section, the centerpiece of it. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. So, he sets up a condition, if you want to be perfect. Now, we have to understand what that means when he says, do you, if you want to be perfect. That doesn't mean flawless righteousness. We only get that by trusting in Christ as Savior, imputed righteousness. Jesus isn't talking about that. Many times in our translations, the Greek word teleos, or one of its forms, is translated perfection, and we think that of that in the sense of flawlessness or, or, or sinless perfection. 
But that's not the meaning of the word. It never has that connotation in Scripture. The idea in teleos is something is complete, something that is whole, something that is mature. So this is the key that one of the keys that unlocks this passage and helps us understand that that Jesus knows that his question is related to maturity, not related to regeneration or justification. If you want to be perfect, he's, then Jesus says three things that he has to do. Now, since salvation is not by works, Jesus can't be talking about justification. He says, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor. Now, the knee-jerk reaction from modern anti-materialists, Marxists, socialists, and others is that, and, and, and legalists and ascetics, is that somehow there's spiritual virtue in poverty. And that somehow people who are poor are, are more spiritual than those who aren't. And that's not biblical. That's not biblical for a, a number of reasons. In fact, if we look in the scriptures, we see examples of a number of extremely wealthy believers. In the Old Testament, we can think of Abraham. Abraham was incredibly wealthy. Job was probably wealthier than um, than Abraham. Uh, he was probably the Bill Gates of his generation in terms of being the wealthiest on the planet. Uh, you can look at others. You can look at David. You can look at Solomon as rulers. But you can see a number of people in the Old Testament who were believers and who were incredibly wealthy. In the New Testament, you have a number of people who are wealthy, and they gave from their wealth to support the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, during his time on the earth. The family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were probably fairly well-to-do. They were uh, they were probably part of a rather small but active middle class in in uh, in Judea at the time. You have a reference to a, a wealthy wife of, of Husa in Luke 8.3. You have an example of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who are both, even though they were secret disciples, they were they were both uh, fairly wealthy. Uh, Zacchaeus was also wealthy. He gave away half his wealth, uh, plus made restitution. And, and, and that shows that when Jesus is talking about go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, that, that's a distinct command that he's giving to the rich young ruler. With Zacchaeus, it was half. With others, he doesn't even mention that. One thing we'll, we'll get to, not until next week, but when Peter responds, he says, Look, Lord, we left everything. Um, we left everything and, um, and, and followed you. We left our houses, we left our but they didn't sell them. They still had those businesses that they could go back to, and, and they did to some degree. So there's this false false comparison here. Uh, Peter recognizes that, uh, I mean, it isn't the idea that you need to give up everything or sell everything. Uh, the disciples certainly didn't sell everything or give it to the poor. So this is not a universal command. Jesus is giving specific instruction to this individual because of his mental attitude. And that is that he's got something in his life 
that is keeping him from truly following Jesus or being obedient to the Lord. Now, every one of us has things like that in our life. Some of them are details of life that like this detail of life, there's nothing inherently wrong with possessions. And in, in fact, in, in, in uh, 2 Timothy, uh, we're told that it is uh, the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's not money. Uh, Christian ministries have flourished over the years because God has not only given a number of believers the gift of giving, but I've seen a lot of people who have the gift of giving also given the, the ability to make money. And they give out of their abundance to support many ministries. Most ministries flourish on the small gifts of lots of different people. But there are uh, wonderful people who God has blessed materially and financially who have not only benefited a, a lot of cultural things, museums and ballet, opera, things of that nature, but they give out of uh, out of the wealth that they produce. They give a tremendous amount to support churches and to support uh, to support missionaries. They recognize that what they have is to be used for the glory of God. Now, this rich young ruler, though, has misplaced priorities on his details of life. Now, for other people, your details may be different from his details, but those details keep us from fully being obedient to the Lord. Uh, in Hebrews, we are told that we are to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. So there are details of life which trip us up, and there's also sins, personal sins, that we're really fond of. In fact, there's so much a part and parcel of our character that we just can't imagine what we would be like if we couldn't hold on to those particular sins. They, they make us feel good and happy, and so they work for us, we think. But in either case, what Jesus is saying is that that if we're going to follow Jesus, you can't look back like like uh, uh, Lot's wife. Uh, you can't look back like uh, uh, the one person who wanted to come and be a disciple and say, "Well, we, you know, following is a good deal, but my father's about to die, and I've got other things to." He's not ready to to just a hundred percent follow the Lord. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. He's not saying there's something inherently virtuous about poverty. There is nothing virtuous about poverty. Virtue it has to do with character, not possessions. The problem is that this is, for this young man, this is the thing that is keeping him from growing spiritually. This is his distraction. Yours is, and mine may be something else. So Jesus says, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. That is, if you can get past this one obstacle, then you're going to grow even more spiritually, and you're going to mature, and there will be uh, be rewards. That, that, that this is the centerpiece of this whole thing I pointed out before is the chiasm of this whole section from Matthew 19:14 down to verse 30. The centerpiece in the chiasm is this section, inheriting eternal life, obtaining treasure 
in the time to come. And this connects us back also to the Mosaic Law, I mean to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. A number of things that are said in this section are, are parallel to what is said in um, in the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what it, they should do in terms of spiritual growth and what it, it what is expected of them as disciples. And he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." So Jesus is saying, this is what you need to do. You need to focus on uh, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. If you want to be a disciple, then you have to focus on storing up treasure in heaven and not focusing on uh, treasure on earth. Your treasure on earth for the rich young ruler is a distraction. That's where your heart is. It's really there. And Jesus is just pointing that, uh, pointing that out to him. Not because he's, as I said, not because he's against possessions or wealth or money, but because he is, um, he's focusing on this individual's problem. And First Timothy 6.10 was the verse I was quoting earlier. It's the love of money, not money. That's often misquoted. That's the root, root of all evil. Now, what's interesting here is to look at the response, the reaction of the disciples. In Matthew nineteen twenty three and 24, um, excuse me, I think I may have, did I miss a verse? No. In Matthew nineteen twenty three and 24, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is interesting imagery. This was a proverbial statement at that time that if something was impossible, then it was, uh, it was described as trying to put a camel through the eye of a needle. A camel was the largest mammal in uh, Judea and Palestine at that particular time, and there was a parallel rabbinic statement that spoke about uh, an elephant going through the eye of a needle. But that rabbinic statement came out of out of Babylon or, or modern Iran. They had elephants over there. The largest animal in um, in Judea was was a camel. And so it was just an expression of something that was uh, humanly impossible. Now, there have been some people over the years who've tried to say that what this is is he's talking about not the eye of a sewing needle, but a gate. And I've got a picture here. This is from uh, a small gate, looking at it from one side uh, and looking at the other side. This is a small gate. Off to the left here is a large city gate. This is in the wall just to the east of the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so it's under the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, if you go to Israel with me, we always go down there and take, take a look at this. And instead of having to open up the large gate to let people in, especially after dark, they would let them in through this, this, this little gate. 
And so it came to be thought of that this was what Jesus was talking about, that this was called the needle gate. However, there is no evidence at all in ancient literature that, that this was ever called a needle gate. Not only that, but the word for needle that's used in the text is the word that's used for a sewing needle. And so it's very clear that it's talking, that Jesus is using this, uh, Id- idiomatically and saying that it's impossible for someone who is distracted by the details of life, in this case wealth, but distracted by the details of life to enter into the fullness of life and the richness of the kingdom. And the disciples, Next verse says, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Now, what's interesting here is you have a couple of different words that are used to, uh, that are translated greatly astonished, which is, which is a little, a little bit strong, but not as strong as, as in the original. The first, the first word that's translated greatly is a, a Greek word sphadra, which mean, literally means vehement or violent. So it's vehemently something or violently something. I mean, this is about as, as superlative a language as you can use. And then the next word is the word ekplaso, uh, which is translated astonished. It means to be amazed, to be flabbergasted, to be gobsmacked. Their mouth drops open. They're speechless. They can't comprehend. They can't process what Jesus has just said. It just doesn't make sense to them. Because Jesus doesn't want some of us. He wants all of us. He, to be a disciple, you've got to be committed to spiritual growth and to following the Lord wherever that takes you. And so then Peter says, then what then must we do in order to be saved? And he doesn't mean justified. He means so that we can grow to be spiritual. Who, who can do it? And Jesus' response is that with men this is impossible. You can't do it on your own. You can't pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. But with God, all things are possible. We can only do it by walking by the Spirit. But we, one thing is necessary, and that is we have to decide that that's what we want. Are we going to follow Jesus or not? Are we going to just sort of play a game with God spiritually? Are we really going to be serious about our spiritual growth? Because when we're serious about our spiritual growth, the promise is not only abundant life in this life, but riches in heaven and treasures in heaven that are used to glorify God, not the personal accumulation of wealth, when we arrive in heaven because of obedience to him. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by, by this text and so many others that that we're called to spiritual growth and maturity. Not The end is not getting justified. That is simply the beginning. The next issue is what do we do after we're saved? Where are we going to go with this salvation? Are we really going to be serious about spiritual growth, or are we just going to play games? Are we just going to show up uh, at church once a week or listen to Bible studies once a week, 
Or are we going to be serious about making biblical study, learning your will, learning your word, the number one priority in our life? We're all busy. We all have many different things to do, many other responsibilities in terms of family, in terms of career. But one thing matters. One thing lasts forever, and that is our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity. And the challenge in this passage is to set aside the things that distract us from spiritual growth so that we can focus on that which truly matters for eternity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening who's never come to grips with the good news of Christianity, never understood that salvation is not by works, that it is solely on the basis of faith in Christ, that you will have made that clear to them in this message. The instant you trust in Christ as Savior, you have eternal life, and that life can never be lost. But the next issue, after you trust Christ, and a separate issue, is what are you going to do with that new life? Father, we pray that we will all be challenged by what we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.